Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very good, thank you, John. Excellent. Uh, Megan Boxwell, how are you, Megan? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's your last podcast, isn't it? It is. Oh, it's terrible. Terrible. Yes, it is. It's very sad. Yeah, yeah, we'll have you back as a guest. Um, anyway, yeah, so Megan's unfortunately leaving us this week. Um, she's done a great job uh, looking after the podcasts over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, this is going to be a good one. There's lots to talk about yeah, this week. week. A, good, a good note to sign off on. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the budget, of course. Uh, lots to talk about there, particularly in your, your uh, favourite sector. Yeah. Tech. Second favourite sector. Second favourite. What's your favourite sector? Pharmaceuticals. Well, that's the cover feature. <laughs> Perfect. And you're talking there about... China and mm. its healthcare market and how this is presenting a huge opportunity for, yeah. and for and it's just so interesting as well the Chinese pharmaceuticals market which people often think as as herbal remedies or at least like generic drugs but it's actually it's not it's an amazing growing market mm. and uh, probably a useful time to have a look at it given that we've obviously got some comparisons with uh, the UK healthcare system which is having huge amounts of money thrown at it mm-hmm. uh, although not necessarily a budget measure uh, pre-budget mm-hmm. measure mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk uh, perhaps a little bit about the high street because that comes out of the budget as well uh, and the the, the, re- the rate relief as some physical retailers are getting there kind of yep. ties into the whole Amazon tech tax thing as well yep. but of course we're going to talk about how and joinery which isn't necessarily high street but it sort of is, and it's, it isn't. It's plugged into the general consumer theme. Yeah, and we actually had some news on help to buy as well, which I know is which is one of your favourite pieces of government policy. Phil, I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so we can, uh, we can we can basically we'll bounce off the budget for this uh, for this podcast. Should we start with the tech tax? Yeah, digital services tax. In fact, mm-hmm. tell us about it. Well, if you are a big tech company and you earn more than five hundred million pounds worth of global revenue you will be taxed on the revenues you make in the UK. So it's 2% tax on your revenues, which is different to what these companies are being taxed on at the moment, which is their profits. Which is what people, companies should be taxed on. Yeah, it is. But this is the argument. The tax laws in the UK were written in 1965 and they aren't necessarily up to date with the current climate for the the current industry climate and it's all about digital and it's all about technology and these companies don't very don't make very much very many profits amazon in particular but it's making a huge amount of money it's in it's in the uk and it's not contributing an awful lot to the public purse even though it's making a lot of money out of uk citizens so that is where the argument has sort of stemmed from europe's trying to implement this kind of tax as well they're actually suggesting three percent but it's taking them such a long time to get that through the regulators that the uk has said right we're going to do our own tax 2020 that is how much these companies are going to start paying okay so it doesn't sound like something that would be especially unpopular with the electorate and in fact that is probably the theme of the budgets well uh, more this is the thing that a lot of people have said the the people who this affects negatively are american companies and they obviously don't vote here so it's a, it's a perfect policy because it makes all the UK happy and it's going to annoy the, the people who it, do, it doesn't matter to the Conservative government that that the US people are going to be annoyed by this tax. Well, you see, I mean, you say that there has been a reaction from the there US. There has, yeah. Um, it's been quite a strong reaction. I think it's surprisingly strong. Yeah, no, no. So, so you've had lobbyists uh, basically questioning the... The validity of the UK going it alone on a policy like this, yeah. and, and, and 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 you know, my question around whether it matters or not to, to to the UK government is that actually, you know, these companies do have a presence here. They are big employers. You know, they would argue that they pay 
they contribute a lot to the economy by the virtue of employing people uh, and the taxes that those employees then pay. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, it is a worry in the context of Brexit and you it's know true, yeah. the, the ability of the UK to attract investment. And yeah, when we need all the friends that we can get, if they're going to be annoying the biggest economy in the world, that's maybe not the most sensible idea. But then rewind a little bit to actually what this tax potentially means and. And the numbers seem quite small. I know. So 440 million by 2023. That's what the Treasury said. I, I don't know where they've got that number from, because if you look at the the earnings and the revenue from f- from US tech giants, a lot of them don't spit out where they make their money from. But the ones that do, Amazon, for example, it made $11.4 billion worth of revenue in the UK in 2017. Roughly half of that is the kind of revenue that's going to be taxed, the actual digital revenue, it's marketplace revenue, which means that based on the 2%, Amazon alone would be contributing 113 million, a quarter of what the government is forecasting. So maybe their forecasts are slightly conservative. I mean, you kind of mentioned that these companies are potentially not, despite these large revenues, are not making much profit. In well, the Amazon's UK. not. So what are they doing? I mean, for, I mean, you must have looked at these companies. Is this, is this just literally buying market share um, before actually then, but then turning the business into something which is profitable? I think there's an element of that. And I think there's also another side to it where there's a lot of time and resource uh, employed by companies to avoid paying tax. And this can be done by playing off different tax regimes in different countries deciding where you've got some flexibility, where you book revenue, where you book costs, where you've applied tax allowances and that kind the, of thing. This I remember that it used to fall, when I we used to work in the accountancy industry very briefly, I think this used to fall under the headline tax transfer pricing. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's a very, very complicated subject. I mean, you can get, depending on what type of industry, and you can choose to take or not choose, but there, there can be situations that arise where you can exploit a tax allowance in one, book your costs somewhere else, book your revenue somewhere else. And if you were really cynical about it, and I'm not really cynical, but very cynical people might just say, well, for some companies, um, how much tax they actually pay on their profits is somewhat optional. Yeah, in which case, and this takes us back to the, the, the structure of this proposed tax, that it's a revenue tax skips all the opportunities. Yeah, it's harder to, to, to manip- you can't manipulate, manipulate your You can't get involved yeah. avoidance schemes or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, and Facebook is a good, a good example of a company which hardly paid any tax in the UK last year, despite the fact it's actually made quite a lot of profits here. And one of the reasons for that was because it got a big rebate because it's something to do with staffing. Uh, that that seems it, se- it seems like that's an example of a company that's worked its way round having to pay. And these companies do that in America as well, which was why the, the corporate tax law, one of the reasons the corporate tax tax code changed in the US when Donald Trump came into office. These companies make profits, book profits in a different way to the way companies did historically. Yeah, so, so I mean, it sounds like the tax code could be simplified to, to, to stop companies exploiting these loopholes uh, and, uh, and actually cross-jurisdictional tax tax mm. arrangements, which seem to be, well, they seem to lack any consistency whatsoever. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, just going back to the actual investment implications of this, you know, we're interested in these companies for the, you know, the, the investment potential. Does this really affect that in any way? It's really hard to tell, but I mean, people are getting jittery about these companies, especially the ones that are particularly expensive. 
We've had the earnings season for the US companies in the last couple of weeks. We've got Apple Apple tonight. And the, they weren't fantastic, the, the numbers, from a lot of the companies. Amazon and Alphabet both missed revenue growth expectations. Facebook's numbers were all right, but they are still being overshadowed by all the regulatory things that are going on there. Microsoft was actually the one company which had reported unbelievable numbers again. They, they We've got them on a buy tip at the moment. They, they've become the second biggest company in the world again. And yeah, this it it could be a worry for these these companies which are being valued so highly if they're they don't have a lot of room for slip ups and if they are going to be taxed more and if that does impact their profits, yeah, we probably might see a bit of a correction. It, 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 actually, uh, Chris Dillow has written something interesting about uh, growth stocks this week and how much you should pay for them, which, which in fact you have as well recently, Phil. Um, he says even the best companies, and I think we can include these tech, tech companies oh, absolutely. They're in, fantastic in that companies, category, yeah. even the best companies can be overpriced if investors price in even faster growth than they can deliver. Which is exactly what we talked about in the podcast last week. And the tax could actually have a have a meaningful impact on yeah, that, especially uh, if, it, if it becomes a Europe-wide thing. Exactly, because it's not just the UK that is that is is suggesting these things. It's Europe and it's it's outside of Europe as well. And that's maybe why the US voice is, is quite loud against this, because it's there's a lot of people who are saying, right, hold up, a lot going on in the, in amid US companies, which we're going to try and clamp down on. Mm. And in fact, I mean, if you look at the sell-off over the last month, October has been a pretty hideous month. Yeah. Uh, the tech companies have, have, have joined that sell-off quite Oh, yeah. Quite notably this Yeah, well, month. if you look at Microsoft, which we tipped in the summer, it's it's down about 4% in, in that time. And it's been the best performing company in that sector mm. by a long way. So, yeah, they've all, all had a pretty difficult time. They have, but they've been bouncing back uh, since yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Dead, I was trying to write about a sell-off. Dead cat bounce. Dead cat bounce, uh, potentially. Potentially. Lots of contentious, you know, conflicting views on that. Some contentious um, about whether we have seen the last of the sell-off, but mm. that's something for another conversation. Let's 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 shift from uh, tech and Amazon in particular to to the news about High Street and the rate relief, because you could argue that Amazon is responsible for a lot of pain on the yeah, High Street. Yeah, and actually, that when Harriet Russell was coming to write this article, we realised that we had a lot of crossover in what we were both writing because the tech tax is something that has also been implemented to help the high street the high street which is really struggling at the moment Mm. and if the tech companies which are stealing a lot of the high street's market are going to start being taxed that that could end up being a a good thing for the high street harry argues that it's not enough though to help the high street yeah it's a bit of rate a bit of rate relief um it's quite substantial for some of these companies in terms of their overall cost base small Mm -hmm. small high street retailers it's very small isn't it yeah, very small. The turnover, we're talking, what, is it 51,000? 51,000 raceable value on a oh, property. Okay, okay. Um, but that's not high. It's that's not, that's it's not, not high. It's not going to help, you know, these high-profile names that we've talked about week in, week out that are really suffering. Yeah, so like your Debenhams, yeah. who, there's obviously been some news there in the last couple of weeks. They had results earlier this week. They did, they're in the magazine, actually. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a very interesting company. Mm. Uh Big store closure program, much bigger than had previously Huge. been. Fifty stores, is it? Over the course of the next three to five years, and I think they had previously been talking about ten. So yeah. this is a huge retrenchment potentially. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, restaurant groups will fall into the same category. They they will not be paying fifty one thousand or, or operating at fifty one thousand rateable value properties. Someone like the restaurant group, for example. Which I know is it? Uh, 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 you, we've we've spotted their acquisition this week. Um, Wagamamas, 
Um, Megan, you like it? I love it. Because you like Wagamamas. I love Wagamamas. Uh, Phil, you hate it because you... Uh, because you hate Wagamamas. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> no be- and that's be- how we make our decisions. Because of the structure of this deal uh, and the price that they're paying. I, I, I dislike it for a number of things. I think I think the, I don't like the price tag. I've got concerns about Wagamama in terms of whether its profits are actually growing as quickly as people think they are. And I think the other thing is that restaurant groups taking on a lot of debt here as well. So you're combining, you know, a lot of operational leverage within a business with fixed costs with financial leverage big rights issue as well to a company big rights issue as well um you know shareholders are you know being asked to fund a large chunk of this and a dividend cut as well Mm. um which to me is if i was a restaurant group shareholder i would thinking well there's a lot there's a lot to chew on here. Yeah, I mean, Megan, Megan this is the so you have had the opportunity this week to write the taking stock I did. column, and this this was the subject. I I, I, I do you a disservice when I suggest that the only reason you like this deal is because you like Wagamama. Um, I mean, you have gone through a lot of the pros and cons here in this column. Um, you know, you can see why they're doing this deal, and I think that's the point you make. Yeah, I I can see why why they're doing doing this deal, not just because I do think Wagamama looks like a pretty decent business compared to a lot of its rest- high street restaurant peers. Its growth rate in the last few years has been, I mean, it's far outpaced the market. It's been amazing. Phil, Phil argues that that growth seems to have stopped, but it has only been one year of slow growth. Not, and in, not that, in sales. Not in sales, in profit. Profit growth yeah. has seems to have come to a come to an end. But it's only been this year, and it's been in a year where they've invested a lot in their store portfolio. They've revamped a lot of their restaurants and and it is it's a it's it's currently owned by private equity restaurant group is buying it out of private equity and it hasn't been sort of overlooked that the invest the investment that the company that currently owns it has made has been been decent and you can you can see just by i mean how popular wagamama is it's it's a really really popular restaurant chain and and restaurant group at the moment it's high street restaurants are not popular frankie and benny's is I mean, it's wildly unpopular, which was... I mean, I've never been to a Frankie and Benny's. I've, or... I've, I have been to one in particular. There's one in Watford, and I used to always have to go there because I used to play netball right next door to it, and it was grim. And my dad used to sit there waiting for me to play netball in Frankie and Benny's. I feel so bad for him all that time. That's, that's, what, that's the price of parenthood. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I, I've never been to a Chiquitos either. I have been to a Wagamama, so it was years ago. So basically what, what you're saying, you, your argument is... The the bits of the group that we don't like, restaurant group know that there's a problem with exactly. them. And, and this Wagamama's deal is part of a strategy which they're already um, engaged in with mm-hmm. their, what do they call it? It's, it's like a growth division. Yeah, so uh, they call, yeah, they, I mean, it's uh, just the companies that are actually doing well. They pile them into the growth division. Mm. The other bit of that is the, their pub groups, which they bought a few years ago. And they're, they're doing really well. And they've kind of just left them alone. They're... They are nicely run pubs. A lot of them are in the north of England, but they're opening up a lot more, or they're buying a lot more in the in the south. And they they are they're growing very well. They're they're also outpacing the growth in the in the wider pubs market. They're they're being opened in pretty strategic locations as well. They're not buying centre of London pubs where it, there's just so much competition. They're they're buying them in the outskirts of London and in the countryside, and they're, they're just nicely run. Then restaurant group are doing a good job at just leaving that business to run run itself well and i, and I guess the point with wagamama's is that this is a profitable business yeah. uh, and, and will be immediately earnings enhance, enhancing mm-hmm. that's uh, what they're, they're saying it will be 
What could go wrong, Phil? It's not. It's not hard to. That's <laughs> earnings when you've got interest rates at one and a bit percent or whatever. Um, I think to be fair on this, I think you know I've, I've had a I had a look over the the figures of Wagamama's, and you know private equity businesses often get accused of starving businesses of investment, underinvesting them, handing on shabby businesses to the stock market or to a trade buyer. I don't think that's the case at all with this. This business looks very well invested. Um, they've they've certainly not skimped spending the money on this, and you know it looks profitable, cash generative. It looks pretty decent, decent business. Market didn't think for this, the same. For the, this, share, the shares tanked on the day this was what, announced. I think what people don't like is they don't like the price tag, right? And you know the price tag based on. They only gave us a figure of EBITDA, unfortunately, which is not a particularly nice figure, particularly for an industry like this. Um, and it, the the actual headline multiple is about over thirteen times EBITDA, which is punchy. And what restaurant group have to do is then take out costs. They're going to convert some of their own restaurants to Wagamamas and get some revenue benefit from that and profit benefit from that and that can bring bring the multiple down to i think just over 9 from mem- from memory um, but that's going to cost money as well. Well, it also suggests that it's not then a project that they can leave alone. I mean, this sounds like it's integral to to the overall profitability of the group. This is that this is now their growth engine. Um along with the um I, I quite the one bit I do like about restaurant group is the airport concessions business, just because you just got a load of captive customers who will quite happily just spend money because they're going on holiday and they can make make good money out of those kind of uh, of businesses. Is is that a big part of their business? It's it's a gr- it's a growing part. It's part of their, of their growth division. It's part of their growth. So it's it's packed in with. So they're going to have Wagamama, Mama, the pubs, and the concessions as their sort of growth division. And then Frankie and Benny's and Chiquitos is going to be the in other there, side. Avoid at all cost division. <laughs> that kind of thing. Close it down quietly. And um, <laughs> so they, they, they've got you know big plans to to, to grow this business. Um, I think from the shareholders' point of view, I think rights issues are often misunderstood. Um, rights issues can be good. I mean, sometimes we complain about the way that companies raise money and that they cut out the shareholder by going for placing. So actually, it's quite nice to see a rights issue, which treats all shareholders the same. Um, but I just think Restaurant Group is going to have to work very, very hard to make this deal pay, given the starting, given the high price it's paid from, given where it started from. And, you know, I always slightly suspicious as well with, with um, buying from private equity, because you know, they are very, very good at not leaving a lot on the table for for um for the buyers in a lot of cases and and dressing assets up for sale as well. I'm not convinced it's been hugely dressed up. I mean, the like for like sales growth is very impressive. But as I was saying to Megan earlier, some of this might be a, like a maturation effect of opening a lot of new restaurants, which are a very good way for retail companies to sort of show that they've got quite strong like for like sales. When actually, what's happening is that restaurants that they've opened in the last couple of years or so are just getting up to their potential level of level of business i think the thing is even with the rights issue um 
restaurant group is going to be carrying quite a lot of debt um, of around two and a half times EBITDA. And that is still only expected to be two times EBITDA at December 2020. So this, these, are, these are businesses that, you know, they do suffer if the economy turns down, their trading profits do suffer. And then you're now loading a load of financial gearing onto the shareholder as well. So I think this deal, the high price, um, the fact that Wagamana might have peaked in terms of its momentum and the debt, I think it increases. It's quite a risky deal from a from a shareholder perspective. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, one one uh, fact you might look at and that may suggest that this is a risky deal is the fact that the restaurant sector over the past year or so has been horrible. Yeah, I mean, you've had as you it's mentioned oversupplied, over massively oversupplied. And as you mentioned in the piece, Megan, you've had what twelve James Italians close, seventeen gourmet burger kitchens, and a hundred prezzos. Yeah. And you might think, oh, that well, that's that's appalling. Yeah, this is a horrible market. But then, actually, as you say, oversupplied. That capacity is also coming out, and mm-hmm. Wagamama's not suffered. So, and yeah. we have and we have a shift as well in in consumer behaviour. You know, you just have to look at you know shift towards takeaway food as well. So you've got you've got that. You've got oversupply, and I, I just think it's quite a strange thing to throw nearly six hundred million quid at a sector like this at this point in time given all the problems that it has. Mm, definitely one to watch then. Mm, yeah. I think it'll be interesting. And and the analysts are saying that the only way that this deal is gonna be beneficial to shareholders is if Wagamama keeps up its current level of of performance. I can't, what view do we have on the shares? They're a buy. They're a buy. They're a buy tip. Yeah. Right, I must have a look at that. <laughs> um, you mentioned airport concessions. Yeah. I think we wanted to quickly touch upon a non-budget related story, which is related to this: is yeah. that W H Smith mm. has done a very yeah. big acquisition this week acquisition. in the US. This, I, I like W H Smith's travel business, um, primarily because it's. It's got a lot of captive customers where there isn't a lot of competition or there's limited com- competition, and then they can charge generally higher prices. And it's a lot it's a lot more profitable than selling stationery and magazines on the high street. And this business has been doing very well for W. H. Smith. One of the things it's been missing is a presence in the American airport market. And this business, this acquisition this week, um, addresses that. Um, it's buy, buying a. Also, it's not buying a sort of sandwich retailer. It's buying a. Uh, it's electronics, sa- isn't it? It's electronics, so earphones, power packs, um, mobile devices, travel accessories, that kind of thing. And this business has been doing doing extremely well, and um, it gives W H Smith a platform. It's a very difficult business for W H Smith to have done from scratch. Um, so getting in with a, a big established operator ticks a lot of boxes. It increases the quality of the company's profits towards a higher rated, more profitable uh, travel business. So from that point of view, this is a good deal. The but bit is, again, we've got private equity seller and a quite punchy multiple um, of nearly 10 times EBITDA because they haven't given us a proper profit figure to look at this. And this is a business that has been owned by a couple of private equity groups in America for five years. They've built it up uh, by acquiring other businesses, and now they've flogged it on 
whilst it's doing very well. I mean, this is a business that is growing like-for-like sales at about uh, 13% so far year-to-date, and it did 12% like-for-likes last year. So this business is firing on all cylinders. It's not, I mean, it's not hugely expensive. I mean, multiples it might be, but in terms of the overall outlay, 155 million quid. Yeah, million, nearly, so two, not, I mean, nearly $200 million. So it's not going to load WH Smith up with debt it's very cash generative, so they're going to be able to pay that down. They're going to keep buying back their shares. So it's not it's not leveraging the business for existing shareholders, so it's really risky. Again, it's just a just a an issue of, of whether they've paid paid too much. This is not as high a quality um, in terms of profits as the existing travel business. WH Smith's Existing travel business makes EBITDA margins of about 18%. Mm. This is about 10% EBITDA margin. But, but they're smart operators, these guys. I mean, they've, they've you know, hung on for dear life as, as, as the retail market and, you know, the magazine market has, has kind of collapsed around them. Yeah. And um, part of that has been just really quite quite efficient uh, operational management. Yeah, they've, Cost take, cutting they've, and... they've taken out unprofitable, low-margin sales, um, cut costs, and they've grown this travel business. I think... You know, apart from the price tag, I think there's a lot to like about this deal. Yeah. And I think if they can continue to grow it and they can use it as a as a platform to win more concessions in airports, um, I, I think it's a good deal. But I mean the market likes it. I mean the shares shares are up fifteen percent Tuesday or Wednesday. Um it's a business that I like. I still think if you look at the try and back out the valuation of this travel business, it's one of the highest rated retail businesses on, in the UK if it was listed separately. Yeah, but that's not saying a great deal. Because no, UK retail no, is but not... it's, no, but it's punchy. You know, yeah, okay. it's, it's sort of tra- it would trade at a premium to, say, JD Sports. JD Sports uh, never been massively expensive. Never been massively expensive, but, but actually very impressive in terms of growth and profitability. We had some other retail results this week that are probably worth a quick mention. Next had some figures out which, on the one hand... Digital online looked great. Yeah, high street figures were absolutely shocking. Yeah, absolutely shocking. And I think I think the issue for and and the thing is is that their profits, despite the the you know the very good growth in the online, the decline in the high street means that profits overall don't grow. Mm. But this business still generates a lot of cash, so they're using that cash to buy back shares, and so. The earnings per share, cash flow per share of the business still growing, okay. but mainly th- not through trading, not for trading reasons. Yeah, we still got to want to buy. It's an it's an interesting car. It's very well run. Again, it's, it's well uh, run. It's not expensively valued. Twelve times forward earnings. Yeah, yeah. It's good cash flow. Um, what else should we talk about? Uh, let's go back to the budget very quickly. Uh, Helps buy uh, extended. Much to your. Uh, Pleasure, Phil. I, I don't like this. <laughs> I've, I've been very vocal about it in the past elsewhere. About you know, it's great for the builders, in my opinion, and I'm sure I'm sure that the house builders are are very happy about this. Funnily enough, we had a question this week uh, from a reader about uh, special dividends, yeah. and he used the example of a Barrett Development as as a company paying special dividend. His point was that we. We speak about them separately on our results tables. We don't incorporate the special dividend in the dividend yield that we state, and, yeah. and we shouldn't. We should we should combine the we two. We shouldn't. Yeah. I think we shouldn't. That was my argument. No, I agree with that. Um, the the point being that that the profits that these companies have been earning and then distributing uh, to shareholders is super super normal. Yeah, these are one off special. Yeah, <laughs> dividends. <laughs> well, haven't been. I mean, they've been going on for quite a while, but they're going to stop. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's in the, the builders have a lot of visibility in that the, if they're running, you know, a land bank that's sort of four or five years existing build rate, they know reasonably what they're going to be able to sell a lot of these things for. They can have a good idea about how much profit they're going to make over the next few years. And so that gives them a lot of certainty um, in terms of how much spare cash they're going to have to give out. Um, but they do appear to have put a time limit on how far they can see into the future. I, I think, yeah, I think if you look at what's happening in the house building sector at the moment, with one or two exceptions, even with the big benefit of help to buy, it's getting tougher. It's getting tougher. Selling price inflation is getting harder to achieve and cost inflation is a big issue. So whether they can expand margins, um, expand volumes in a big way, some of them can. I think Bellway looks quite well placed. Potentially they need to buy more land, though. Um, and that, that might not be as cheap as it once was. I think I think they're still buying land at good prices, okay. actually. Um, which, is, which is helping them. Their profitability. Yeah, I think the the uncertainty obviously is, you know, what you're going to be able to sell it for in to sell sell the houses on that land for two in two or three years time. If the new build market holds up, supported by help to buy, everything will be fine. If it doesn't, then you've got you've got more of a problem. And, and these builders have been through through cycles. They've seen their profits get hammered in a recession, so they're they're pretty conservative. So. It's not surprising to see them rein these special payouts uh, back a bit. Yeah, definitely a sector to be wary of. I would say. Um, I think they're good. In- I think they're good income producers. Uh, but you're losing a lot of capital at the moment. Yeah, they're paying. They're paying capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a tricky one. Um, I mean, it wasn't actually announced in the budget, but a lot of money went into the uh, was announced for the NHS earlier this year. Yeah, which was reiterated in Philip Hammond's budget speech that that this had essentially already been promised. Um, I mean, we, we've written features about the NHS. Uh, I think you did a feature called Fixing the NHS. I did, yeah. It was a good one, actually. It was really interesting, that one. It was, it, I mean, it wasn't the most popular feature I think we've ever, ever written in terms of political views, but it was an interesting way of looking at it, trying to take a step back from politics and seeing what the private sector could potentially do. Not saying that it has to have an impact, but there are things that are happening in the private sector which... Could, could end up helping the NHS, which is costing the government a lot. In, indeed. I mean, I guess one of the the, the... the idea that you could separate private business from the NHS is kind of weird to me anyway, because a lot of things that the NHS needs to buy, oh, it has to buy from the private exactly. sector. And medicine is one of those things. Yep. Um, and your cover feature this week... So, I mean, let's not get into a big debate about the NHS and how much it should have and how it should be funded uh, and whether private industry should be involved. But there are other markets, in healthcare markets in the world, which look very attractive to, to uh, pharmaceutical retailers, mm-hmm. uh, retailers, uh, producers, um, China being one of them. And that's the subject of the cover feature. Talk us through the, the kind of key points. Yeah, so the pharmaceutical sector's had a really rough year. There's been, it's just it's just tough to be a pharmaceutical, to be a drug developer at the moment because the, it's done so well for so long in, in the US and the US market's just slowing down because it's the political angle is is getting harder there and it's just it's not been a great market for them so a lot of the companies are turning to china where it's another country where the government is just throwing money at the healthcare sector and part of the reason for that is because it has to it has an enormous population whose medical needs have been unmet for a very long time and because it has such an enormous population and it's also now an aging population and 
in terms of the illnesses that they're getting, it's a lot of traditionally Western illnesses. It's obesity, it's cancer. And that means that there's suddenly this massive number of people who are wealthier than they were and looking to spend some of that money on better medicines than they've historically had access to in China. It's an incredibly attractive market for for pharmaceutical companies. And AstraZeneca is the UK company and is actually the, the company that's thrown the most money at it overall in the last few years and it's done so well out of China their growth rates there have been amazing it, it seems to have taken quite a brave approach there as others have been quite nervous sort of tentatively yeah. approaching this market AstraZeneca has kind of gone you know gone all out really well that's what AstraZeneca is doing at the moment that's why I respect it as a company so much more than I respect GSK it is it's taking very bold moves and yeah maybe they won't be the right moves but at least it's really going for what it's doing it's throwing a lot of money in its R&D platform and it's throwing a lot of money at China and it was it started putting a lot of money in China when at a time when the regulation wasn't great it was a time when like GSK was going through its whole scandal in China that that's what kind of comes to mind when you think about Chinese pharmaceuticals and AstraZeneca's not worried about that it was it's, a kind of a bit of a contrarian approach really to to that market yeah absolutely I mean I think one of the one of the things you point out is that Perhaps when Astra went into the market, things like drug development uh, applications took a very, very long time mm. to go through. There's been a lot of uh, regulatory movement on that, so, th- so those times are much reduced. So there's a really excellent table there. Uh, what's it? Before the regulation changed in 2016, 22 months on average to get a new drug through, which is now down to six months, mm-hmm. which is a f- that's phenomenally quick. Oh, it's amazing. And it's amazing how quickly that change has happened as well, that... It wasn't that pharmaceutical companies weren't applying for new drug applications in China. It was just that they were getting stuck and they had this massive backlog of drugs which had been, they'd applied and they were, they didn't have enough people working. They've upped their staff by about 300% in the Chinese FDA. And they've also got rid of one of the, one of the steps which it, you, you used to have to redo your trial in China, your drug trial. And you don't have to do that anymore. So the results, if you've done a global study, you can use those results in your application for a Chinese approval, Yeah, which has also obviously shortened the, the timeline. So it means that all these companies, which have had drugs on the market in the US and in Europe for years, have suddenly been able to just launch them all in China as well, which is why the growth rates have been so, so high. But now as well, companies are starting to launch their drugs in China before they launch them anywhere else, which is a complete turnaround of what it used to be used to be US first and then everything else sort of as and when. But now China is becoming the first market of, of approval. Much, much bigger market, obviously. It will. It could be eventually. The chief executive of Hutchinson China Meditech, who he, it's an English company, but well, it's, it's being run by an English, English people, but it, it's obviously based in China. And he's saying that it's inevitable. It's going to be the biggest market because it's got the biggest population and they, they are going to end up spending more on drugs than, than the Americans do eventually. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Hutchison, uh, China Meditech. I mean, as well as uh, the sort of general desire to, to have a, a, a healthier population, this is part of their industrial strategy oh, as yeah. well. Um, trying to develop sort of homegrown drug developers uh, as well as attracting inward investment. I mean, and Hutchison, China, China is a, a good example of that. Yeah, it's the first company, first Chinese-based company to develop a drug in China, take it all the way through to development and then launch it in China, ever, a, a cancer drug. And it, the, the government is is being very helpful to, to any Chinese company and also any foreign company that's trying to launch 
launched drugs in America, they've got rid of a lot of their tariffs. I mean, at a time where they're putting up tariffs for in, in most other industries, they're being very helpful to the to the drugs industry. And uh, the VAT that people have to, or hospitals generally have to pay on the drugs, that has come down a load as well. So it, it's everything about the market is very attractive at the moment apart from sort of the the obvious i mean risks of investing in china they are still there it is still a risky market and the risks of a drug of drug development as well it's they're two risky things but they're less risky combined which is it's really unusual for two such risky markets which are, have had such a terrible year together they are they're proving quite a good investment. There you go, China potentially the saviour of the uh, the global pharmaceutical industry. Um, we, have, we haven't even got to Howden's from from drugs to kitchens. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk quickly about Howden's because we're running out of time. Yeah. Um, that's the subject of your your uh, column this week. Yeah. Um, Howden's is a great business. It's a quality business, both in terms of its product and and as a in terms of its financial uh, stock market performance. Um, but it's stuck in a bit of a rut. Um, it's fine. It's finding it quite hard at the moment to to grow its profit. Um, it has has sort of it's investing quite heavily in new depots, IT distribution, and it's also the cost of what it buys in, um, which is about two thirds of what it sells. That's going up in price as well. Its margins have been going down a bit, and so the last. 18 months, two years, it's finding it quite hard to, to grow its profit. And I've had in this in this sort of article here, I've had a I've had a sort of good look under the bonnet of uh, of Howden's, and one of the things that intrigues me a little bit, and something I'm cautious on, is that um, one of the great attractions of a builder of of Howden's is it gets um, gets about eight weeks credit um, from Howden, so it can buy its kitchen. Do its job for its customer, get paid by its customer before it has to pay Howden's. And there's been a big jump in the amount of um, of credit customers taken on. Uh, there was a big step up a few years ago. So presumably that puts some pressure on Howden's balance sheet. It's got a fund. Yeah, I mean it's... Howden Howden is very what they call working capital intensive. So it, uh, it, it certain t- it's a very seasonal business. And actually, about now is is one of its busiest times of the year. So you get, get those bit, kitchen ins before Christmas. I'm there. That kind of thing. I'm not going to Howden's. Yeah. But, uh, big, <laughs> there you go. So you get big stock build up, and then you get a lot of sales on credit. So that's obviously something that has to be financed by uh, by Howden's. And just one of the things I was looking at as um, was actually looking at its its trade receivables. And looking at the the risk that some of these receivables go bad, and it's quite interesting. the The actual amount of debtors uh, overdue is is going up quite quite sharply over the last couple of years. Now, that's not gone bad, but I think about a quarter of its trade receivables on its last year end balance sheet were actually overdue. And the concern that I have hopefully an unfounded one but one of the concerns that i do have about this business is because it is reliant on credit because you've seen such a large growth in credit in credit accounts um that this might be an achilles heel for howden's which is other thing other things being equal actually is a very very good business but i do do worry about this credit this credit issue 
Yeah, so definitely something to keep an eye on. I mean, it's not it's not the cheapest. Uh, I mean, it's not a retailer. It's what is it? It's uh, building materials. Yeah, it's, class it's, itself it's, a, it's a manufacturer and supplier of of kitchens and and joinery equipment. But it's thirteen times earnings forecast earnings for the shares. Yeah, that's not the cheapest it's sort of retail focused business out and, there. You know, there's definitely a housing market theme here. Yeah, you know, people get. People get their kitchens done when when they feel confident, they feel feel wealthy from a from a wealth effect of rising house prices. It's a business that's been brilliantly managed. It's had a good following wind on its back. Um, it can man. It's proved that it can manage tough times. I just think that this business has probably peaked and and has has some risk as well. So what I suppose bottom line is. It's not being the share price has been in a bit of a rut. I think it's probably going to stay in a bit of a rut. Yeah, yeah. Be careful when bargain hunting. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, well, I am in the market for a kitchen at the moment. Um, and what I what I'm, I observe about the UK kitchen market is there is a lot of competition out there. There are many, many places you can go and buy a kitchen now. Yeah, I mean, it just worries me. It just worries me that you know this. You've got it's to be kind quite, of all it does. Yeah, but you got to be careful who you buy a kitchen from. Well, I know I've done a lot of research, and it's, um, <laughs> it's what we do on the IC. You know, the last, the last, um, I think the last recession, a lot of kitchen suppliers went bust. Yeah, they did. I, I, they uh, did. I think some of them have come back, or they they like were double glazing companies. They yeah, back, yeah. They? It's it's. Uh, and Howden's very well financed. You know, there's two, this this company's got over two hundred million pounds net cash. Uh, it's not going to go bust. No, no. I mean, that's not what I'm, what I'm suggesting. No, at all. I, know, I, just, I, I just think I think you know, pricing will come under pressure because of the competition there, out there. There is there is a lot of competition, yeah. Um, and that that would worry me too. Okay, well, we covered a, a huge amount of ground there. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you, Megan. An excellent last podcast. Very good. Last we'll podcast. definitely have you back if you want to come back. That'll be great. Excellent. Um, we've got lots more in the magazine this week. We've spoken a bit about China. Uh, Mark Robinson has put together a piece about Vietnam, which is uh, potentially moving from frontier to uh, emerging markets or the secondary emerging market status uh, at some point. Lots in the personal finance and fun section, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Quite a week on the results front. But a ridiculously busy week on the news front. Yeah, loads of news pages this week. Absolutely loads. Uh, a lot of those were kind of sort of semi-tip update type things. So many tip updates. And the most horrific tip updates page oh, I've ever seen. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> um, which I guess is a f- partly a factor of the partly markets. It's partly the markets, yeah. I mean, Relics is one of the tip updates on that page and its share price movement is not justified. So that's... We'll come back to it. A shining light. We, 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 we'll very take this as a bleak as a, tip update. It, it, it doesn't look good. We've got an interesting piece on the banks in the news section as well. They've had a bit, yeah. of, a, bit of a tough sell-off so far. Um, yeah, loads. And uh, uh, some more on the budget as well. Chris Dillo, uh, some economic thoughts on the budget, which are very interesting, but uh, not for us companies folk to discuss right now. I know you didn't think much of the budget, Phil. Uh, no, but let's not bore people. <laughs> um, thank you, Phil. Thank you, Megan. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Curing China, how China's shift to high-tech medicine is changing the global pharmaceutical industry. Uh, look out for it in uh, All Good News H, including WH Smith. Uh, and uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you very much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.